It is indeed a great joy to be back with you uh, today after quite a long time now, but uh, um, as you've already heard, I have some issues with my back, but I'm, I'm praying the Lord will sustain me through this message and, and my wife will drive me home today. So uh, thank you for your invitation to come and preach here again. You have been prayed for in Charlotte more times than, than you know. I want to begin my message this morning, really a preface to my message, with a quote from a notable atheist, the late highly educated atheist Christopher Hitchens, had a stock answer whenever he was asked why he wasn't a Christian. Speaking of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, he said, he could not take any teacher seriously who declared, take no thought for the morrow. Because if you never thought about tomorrow, why, you'd never make any plans, you'd build no businesses, you'd never save for retirement, etc. So understand, this otherwise brilliant man, highly educated, trained in philosophy and critical thinking, takes one-third of one verse from an archaic English translation that actually misses the meaning substantially. He ignores everything else in the teachings of Jesus and the whole Bible about time and stewardship and planning to declare himself a non-believer. Now, his, his apologetic really is laughable there. But the lamentable Mr. Hitchens did point to an interesting subject with his comment. How are we to think about the involvement of God in the flow of time, in the days, today and tomorrow and the day that follows? I mean, there, is time for us only about calendar stuff, you know, Days, weeks, months, years. Is there some deeper, greater meaning to time? Now we know, as we just experienced, that Jesus has covered our sins with His grace. Has He covered our time, our days, with His grace? It's a theological question, but you know it's also a very practical question. It's the issue I want to address this morning here at Christ's Covenant. I take for my text today the first 13 verses of the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, the writings, we believe, of the wisest man of his day, at least, King Solomon of Jerusalem. So I want you to give attention to the public reading of God's holy word as I read to you now from Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season, and for a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, 
a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Father, in the ministry of your word and through the work of your spirit, you still speak to your people today. So by this secret yet sovereign operation of your spirit in the hearts of your church, help us once more now. For truly, we we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. And so we ask for this in the name of the Word made flesh, the risen and ascended Word of God, Jesus Christ, who prays for us even as we pray to Him. Amen. Now it's obvious, isn't it, to to everyone, not just those of you here today, but to everyone that Our lives, all our lives, are really just a series of events. You know, the postmodern bumper sticker says, stuff happens. But the real question is this. Is there an overarching or an embedded meaning in this series of events that makes up our lives? Or are they just random, unintelligible things that happened to happen to us. Was Shakespeare's Macbeth right that life was just a meaningless parade of circumstances as when he said tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty place from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, signifying Nothing. Now for many people, and and not just the late Christopher Hitchens, 
But for many people you know, in your neighborhood, in your extended family, maybe even some here this morning, truth be told, life really has no great meaning. It has no larger point or purpose, no rhyme, no reason. Yes, stuff happens, but it all signifies nothing. Solomon understood that point of view. In fact, he wrote about it in Ecclesiastes many times. He writes of it in the very first chapter. Now, we read from chapter 3, but in the opening chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon speaks with what I think of as a kind of Shakespearean voice. He writes, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Now, those of you who've studied Ecclesiastes know that that phrase, under the sun, which Solomon uses over 20 times in this book, that phrase basically means life as we ordinarily experience it in our fallen natural state. And so Solomon's life under the sun And Macbeth's tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing, those are one and the same thing, you see. There's no meaning to the days from this view. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty place from day to day. Or as Solomon would say, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Indeed, life is experienced exactly that way when it is not received through the Word of God in the context of the promises of God and through the wisdom of God. But Solomon also knows a more excellent way and he weaves that into his writing in Ecclesiastes as well. With faith in the sovereignty of God working through all things, life is not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Life is not random. It is not an ever-cycling wheel of meaningless stuff that happens to us. To say it like Solomon, life is not a mere vanity. That word vanity in the English is a translation of a Hebrew word that basically means mist, a vapor. You know, it's here for a moment and then it's gone. No. Gloriously, most blessedly, wondrously, and entirely counterintuitively, The wise King Solomon, who saw this apparent randomness of life, was also able to write these words, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Playing on that word season, Solomon is saying that for everything, I mean for everything, there is a fixed and ordained time, just as spring follows winter and summer precedes the fall, it is determined. All may indeed appear random, but it is in fact well-ordered. 
in a plan that is both inscrutable and utterly irresistible. As Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, which he also wrote, every casting of the lot, we would say every uh, a roll of the dice, is determined by God. Now, that is a most audacious thing to claim. It's even more audacious to believe such a thing. Maybe we're just all crazy. After all, every day a dozen things happen to you that may not seem to make any great sense or have any great meaning. And you see, Solomon's not saying that if, we, if we're just smart enough or, or if we're spiritual enough, we can discern some hidden meaning in everything. But he is saying there is a divine ordering of events. There is a divine purpose of some most extraordinary sort. And it's discerned, if it's discerned at all in this life, it is discerned only by a rational faith. So that for everything, again, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. But the question still must be asked, because frankly, the Christopher Hitchens of the world are going to ask it. Is this all just pious, wishful thinking? Is this another, is this whole idea of providence, another vanity among all the obvious vanities of our short lives? Well, first of all, let us remember that at the, the macro level, as I call it, the biblical view of all of life and redemption, it is entirely framed by the great covenants that God made in time and space with His people on earth. If we are speaking of the great works of creation, redemption, and judgment, and consummation, then there is no wasted time, you see. There's no downtime. There's no irrelevant time from the first man and woman to the children that were born this week. Every person is born into a time that is marked by redemptive promises and redemptive activity from God. There's no time that isn't attached to salvation. God is always framing our reality through historical covenants that fall on a, a timeline. You know the covenants. The covenant, of course, with Adam. And then the covenant with Noah. And the covenant with Abraham. Then came the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. And then the covenant with the precursor of the Christ, David. And finally, when Paul says the fullness of time had come, the new covenant through Jesus himself. And we all, we, we, everyone in this room is so blessed to live in the time of the new covenant. This is late in the storyline of salvation. Many of the precious promises of the gospel are already fulfilled. That's why at Advent, at Christmas time, we remember the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the age that we live in is the prime age of the Holy Spirit. 
It is the time, the season in history of the great commission to the whole world when hearts of stone, rejectionist hearts of stone, are being made hearts of flesh before God by the work of the Spirit. This is the pregnant time between the first and second comings of the Son of God Himself. These are the last days, Peter says. And we see around us, in all the travail of the world, the birth pains of the new heavens and the new earth. And our most discerning prayer is always, Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon, Lord. Now that's the macro view of life, according to the Bible. But here in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon is talking about the micro view of life, down into the details. Everything, he says, in our lives, from our birth to our death, is covered. It's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. There's a time to weep, and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There is, beloved in the Lord, there is in every Christian's life a comprehensive seasonality. In your life, this is so. It almost seems to me that this macro view of redemption framed by the great covenants has seeped down into the details of our daily lives. And now all things... Solomon says, all things now have their proper season. As Paul says, and as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, the God who secured our salvation through predestination didn't stop there. He also, Paul wrote, is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. All things. You know what all things means in the original language? It means all things. Absolutely all things. <laughs> Includes that squirrel chewing through your cable television wire. It includes your deep sense of satisfaction in your grandson's graduation. It includes the drunk driver who killed the Girl Scout. It includes each day's sunrise, this day's sunrise. It includes the blowing up of the Israeli fences that separated the murderous Hamas terrorists from sleeping Jewish families. It also includes the antibodies in your own blood this morning that just this week, without you even knowing it happened, 
fought off an infection or a disease that would have killed you if they weren't standing guard over your health, as God appointed them to do. God always accomplishes all His holy will in all things that ever happen. When men and women make their various plans and intentions and schemes, who knows if it'll come to pass. It's always God's will that's finally done. Now this is not his, what theologians call his preceptive will, his will in his moral commandments. Obviously, every day people break his moral commandments. But what we're describing here is what is called his decretive will. The things that he decrees in his sovereign authority and control over the world by which he ordains everything that comes to pass. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, Solomon also wrote Proverbs, says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. Amen? Look, I I can't stress enough what a wondrous view of life this can be. As ragged, as raw, as random as life seems to be on the surface. And look, it seems that way to all of us at times. It seemed that way to Solomon, who was considered the man of most discernment of his generation. Nevertheless... The wisdom of faith claims that something holy, something good is at work in and through it all for those who are in union with Jesus Christ by faith. After all, our view of our current reality in all of earth's history really pivots on but three days in Jerusalem when a brutal cross was followed by a gloriously empty tomb. Those Three days can be thought of as the fulcrum, the turning point of all human history, all days before and after. Pivot on those three days between crucifixion and resurrection. And through the lens of those days, we see everything now as going through crucifixion and resurrection. So this is not some kind of fanciful faith that we have. This isn't, you know, what did the old Disney... Saw wishing upon a star. This is based in human history, in experience. It's based also in the very nature of God Himself. It rests on His clear promises to us, not on our expert analysis of events. It also takes into account the really frankly, inexplicable survival of the true church through ages of persecution from the outside of the church and ages of incompetence, unfaithfulness, and clear, uh, sheer distraction inside the church. So, so we look to God Himself, to, to what He's done and to what He's promised to interpret our lives. It's not the other way around where You know, I decide who God is by how my Tuesday went, you see. One Scottish commentator from a century or two ago 
century and a half ago, a man named Ralph Wardlaw, a Scottish abolitionist and congregationalist pastor, said this about this chapter in Ecclesiastes, and this is very sort of Scottish theology quote, but some of you will like it, others of you won't, but you'll forget I read it, so it won't matter. The perversity of sin has indeed disturbed the order of God's providence, but yet the work progresses. The wheel in the middle of the wheel. Now he's using a phrase from Ezekiel chapter 1 about that vision of wheels within wheels and this machine that continues to operate through everything. The wheel in the middle of the wheel moves forward and performs the appointed work. Now, Caprice and short-sighted ignorance and fickleness of purpose distinguish the works of man. But here, in the center of the wheel, everything is worthy of God. It is, he writes, the wise and regular and orderly administration of one who sees the end from the beginning and to whom there is no unanticipated contingency and whose omniscient eye in the midst of what appears to us inextricable confusion has a thorough and intuitive perception of all the endlessly diversified relations and tendencies of all events and all their circumstances, discerning throughout the whole the perfection of harmony. There is then, he writes, a season for every work of God, and it comes in its season. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that, dear sisters and brothers in the Lord? You see, this is, this is, why, this is why we can say confidently God is never disturbed. He, he's not fretting. He's not anxious. He's not depressed. I mean, it's not that he doesn't care for us, his children. He, He cares for us more than we care for ourselves, frankly. But the way he cares for us is through his providential ordering of our lives. He's always working through all things to maximize his own glory getting through the deepest possible blessing on his covenant people so that all things really do work for the good of his people ultimately. The foundation, and if you, if you uh, remember any sentence from my sermon, I hope you remember this one. The foundation, therefore, of all lasting, intelligent joy must be the total sovereignty of God. And so, brothers and sisters, let your joy, not, not your Presbyterian argumentiveness about this cornerstone doctrine of the church, but let your joy in experiencing it, let that be your best witness to this doubting world and in relating also to other believers and other denominations of Christ's church who seem to lack full confidence in the total sovereignty of God. Because that joy, that joy that's based in the sovereignty of God over all matters will never end, you see. It's never going to be stopped. It's never going to be frustrated until it is fulfilled and consummated in the new heavens and the new earth, world without end. Amen.
And then, as we're promised, our faith, by now, right now it's by faith, but then it will be through sight. We will see the fully unfolded purposes of God. Won't that be great? And so there are indeed discernible seasons in each of our lives. I mean each one of our lives. That's what these words from Ecclesiastes 3 are teaching us. And what's more, God, God's ordained seasons in our individual lives have certain characteristics. That's how we know it's not one season, now it's another season. I mean, speaking of real actual weather seasons, if you go outside and it's five degrees, you know it's not July in Greensboro, right? You know it's not summer. It's by the characteristics of the seasons that we know they have changed. I've just entered a season of retirement from full-time ministry after almost 40 years in this good work. As you can see from this morning, I well, you can see several things. You can see I need to retire from full-time ministry. <laughs> but you also see that I intend to keep doing gospel work. I told the congregation in Charlotte, I'm calling it downshifting. I'm not giving up the work of the men. I'm just downshifting into a different mode of service. And there are blessings and there are burdens in every single season we face, aren't there? I don't want to overstate our ability to discern all these things. These divinely purposed characteristics of our seasons are never perfectly understood by us. For one thing, we don't really know what tomorrow holds. But, and I think this is so important, just because we don't perfectly understand does not mean we don't understand at all. You know, sometimes, oftentimes, we understand a seasonal purpose better kind of after the fact. The Puritan John Flavel famously said, The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Having said that, once the purpose of a season has become apparent to us, we can confidently pursue it as God's good will in our lives, and we must. Just an example, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman congregation in chapter 15, verse 29, says to that congregation in Rome, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That's not a throwaway line on his part. Do you interpret your life as a series of God-ordained and Christ-blessed seasons because that's what it is do you how it would change the way you experience your life if you can actually believe this think of the seasons of king david's life solomon's famous father there were those years in david's life where he was in total obscurity, the youngest son of Jesse out with the sheep by himself, spending time under the stars in total obscurity, but meditating on the stars, which he would later write about in Psalms. Then there was the season of David's sudden ascendancy in Israel after his remarkable slaying of Goliath, the Philistine weapon of mass destruction. 
Then there was the dangerous season of being hounded by the jealous and paranoid King Saul. By the way, many of the Psalms came out of that season. Then there were the Camelot years of his own kingship and the capitalization in Jerusalem, followed by a season of of painful discipline and repentance due to his sin with Bathsheba. Which, by the way, interestingly, in God's providence, led to the birth of Solomon. Followed, of course, finally by David's declining years, where he made plans for the succession of the crown to Solomon, and he initiated the idea of building the temple for the worship of God, at least the idea of it. You see, every season of his life was profitable in a sense. It was good. Some of them were wretched, at least the time running from Saul, but they were useful to God. And brothers and sisters, that is, that is the good life, to be useful to God. That's the full life that Jesus promised, the abundant life he said was ours. Sometimes these seasons are so starkly different from one another that we have to change our names. Think of in the New Covenant era, Saul becomes Paul after meeting the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. What a change of seasons that was for him. The Lord very often uses people instrumentally to inaugurate or to close out a season In our lives, and we should thank them for it. Though God is sovereign, they were willing. My wife was used instrumentally of the Lord, both in my original conversion back in the late 1970s and in sustaining me in the work of the ministry for for 40 years. In fact, none of my seasons of ministry across Five congregations would have been possible at all if the Lord had not providentially provided the woman I needed but had no idea how much I needed her. Nancy, sitting right back there, the pastor's wife, par excellence. And there's another important point Solomon makes in these verses, that our covenant Lord is always working through our lives in these seasons he appoints for us. In other words, he's never not working in the realm of providence. Something's always going on. There's no off-season for providence, for the work of the Lord. And the seasons cover, Solomon says, every matter under heaven, from birth to death. They include the happy times. Indeed, we should glory in God in times of blessing, but no less the hard times. There is a time, Solomon says, to mourn and a time to dance, a time to seek and a time to lose. Frankly, the sovereign Lord often sanctifies us more. He makes us more Christ-like through the hard seasons than through the happier ones. Some of you may remember the title of that wonderful little book written by the great hymn writer, Margaret Clarkson, who suffered with disabling migraine headaches her whole devout life. Her little book was entitled, Grace Grows Best in Winter. In Winter. 
in my own life, some of the painful but productive winter seasons of my life have included the time of personal depression in college that in a way began to lead me to Christ and my conversion. There was the period then when we left the mainline Presbyterian denomination for conscience sake around, it was in 1998, and I resigned as senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Hendersonville, a church we loved. There were several years of turmoil in the early 2000s where our elders and myself had a conflict with a troublesome associate minister. It was a time of my um, severe heart disease and emergency bypass surgery in 2015. And there was a season of our son-in-law Brad's physical decline and death from a rare disease. And there were those hard COVID years that were hard for everybody. You see, winter is going to come regularly for us. But if we understand God's faithfulness and the way He grows His people through trials, then we can say with Solomon in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And that phrase, in its time, is critical. Now that is not some silly, superficial claim. This isn't putting some Sunday school pious spin on the situation. It's not whistling past the graveyard. And just to be clear, Solomon's also not claiming that such divine care for us is obvious to us in the circumstances themselves. Frankly, it's often not obvious to us at all while we're in it. Right after Solomon says that God has made everything beautiful in its season, in its time, he says also he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Did you get that? Did you just hear what I read? He cannot find out what God has done. God has seen to it. Man is not going to figure all of it out. He can't study his way out of personal darkness. Even going to seminary will not help with this. We all live amidst providential mysteries. One of the greatest books ever written, on this, maybe the greatest, was a book called The Mystery of Providence. Now, I know that's not what you expected Solomon or me to say, that God prevents us from knowing all the answers. But you see, our faith doesn't come. Our faith in God's goodness, doesn't come from having a heavenly secret decoder ring to find all the cheerful, positive sides to everything in life. It doesn't come from prematurely writing a happy ending to every story of our existence. No, no. Our knowledge of God in salvation, that Eternity that God has placed in our hearts actually teaches us not only what we can know about the Lord and His plans, but what we cannot know about the Lord and His plans. You know what the Old Testament through, the, through Moses taught us, 
The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are secret things and then there are things revealed. My dear sister Jenny, who is a member of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, by the way, uh, recently said to me, well, several years ago, at the worst part of the COVID crisis, incredibly difficult time in our congregation in Charlotte, uh, she said to me, Dean, you just need to abide in Christ. And that's what we have to do. We have to simply abide in Him. Not That doesn't mean understand all His purposes in a given moment. It means abide. Just abide. Just hold on by faith. Hold on to Him. Hold on to each other. After all, He has put eternity into our hearts. And the New Testament way of saying that is He's enabled us to cry out in our adoption, Father, Abba, Father. See, He wants us to cling to Him by faith, not to His known purposes in something because we often don't know them initially. He'll reveal his purpose in due season, though sometimes for us that will not be till heaven. Listen, do you see your life under the daily shepherding care and fatherly providential ordering of a loving God who means nothing towards you but blessing and care? Jesus said, if God cares so much for sparrows and lilies, how much more for you as people? The Lord alone knows exactly what this next season and Nancy and my life holds for us. I have some ideas about how I can continue to serve the Lord and engage in some writing projects and such. But the Lord knows. He has a plan. He'll make it clear in due season. And He'll do the same for you, Christ Covenant Church. You're all in kind of a new season congregationally now, aren't you? Our covenant-keeping Lord, I want you to know today, is as much with you right now in His presence, in His love, in His unfolding plans for you as He was a year ago or two years ago at this time or any other time. And while you may not know all that the future holds for you, you do know the one who holds your future. And he's good. He's so good. This much I know, believing in God's providence in the passing of life's seasons has been a really satisfying way to live. I mean, it really has. I began this sermon by quoting a bitter atheist I'll end it by quoting a battle-scarred Christian who at the last, I believe, came to know some real personal contentment in the Lord. Johnny Cash once sang a song called A Satisfied Mind. How many times have you heard someone say, if I had his money, I could do things my way. But little they know that it's so hard to find one rich man in ten with a satisfied mind. Once I was winning in fortune and fame, 
everything I dreamed for to get a start in life's game. Then suddenly it happened, I lost every dime, but I'm richer by far with a satisfied mind. Money can't buy back your youth when you're old, or a friend when you're lonely, or a love that's grown cold. The wealthiest person is a pauper at times compared to the man with a satisfied mind. And finally, this stanza. When life has ended and my time has run out, my friends and my loved ones I'll leave, there's no doubt. But there's one thing for certain, when it comes my time, I'll leave this old world with a satisfied Mind. And may it be so for you too, dear friends in Christ. For the Lord has made everything in your life beautiful in its time. And He has put eternity into your hearts so that you, we all, can by faith be truly and forever satisfied. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together, if we can. Oh, Father, may we all find satisfaction in the knowledge that you have appointed, and indeed Christ has personally blessed all the seasons of our lives. May we continue to learn in the school of Christ that you are working through all things, yes, all things, even all things, for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Oh, we do love you, Lord. We love you because you loved us. And we're so satisfied today in you. May we remain satisfied with you and in you forever. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.